Right now on Tech Radio, the boss is away. Will the mice play? Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. You're very welcome to episode 963. Today, we're looking at the real beneficial use of drones and perhaps how to stop them from shutting down the airports. Also on the show, a cashless Ireland. What is Microsoft Acropolis? And how bad TikTok really is for your phone. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson, is not with us this week. Taking his place is Tech Central journalist, Julie O'Reilly. Welcome to Fabulous Podcasting World. Hello, Dusty. How are you today? Very good. So listen, uh, first story on our list of things to chat about is Ireland is going cashless. How bad, how good is it? Look, we all know that uh, the appetite for contactless and digital payments really, really accelerated during COVID. But what we're seeing now is record high contactless payments, even greater than during the peak of the pandemic when, you know, when we were doing our very best to avoid handling money and physically touching the card reader. It's even higher now. So it seems that that period really just changed consumer behavior and it had a real lasting impact. Mm. So in 2022... Irish consumers spent 17.9 billion using contactless. And that is a massive one third higher than contactless payments were in 2021. So we're seeing the trend really go up and up and up. And Ireland has one of the fastest adoption rates of contactless and digital payments in Europe as well. So we're really ahead of the curve in that respect. It just seems we can't get enough of tapping away. Did you notice uh, that when COVID kicked in, that everybody just all of a sudden started using Revolut? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people had been putting off downloading it because you have to upload some files and documents and people were like, no, it's a hurdle. And everyone can't get enough of this. I remember when I noticed that it was really starting to kick in. I was I was getting chips down at the chipper. And uh, and I said to you, I was paying with my phone. I said, lots of people paying with the phone now. And she goes, oh, God, yeah. And the watches with the Apple Watch. Yeah. And she says, uh, she said, and then they get really angry. If the, if our machine, if our terminal goes and we need to get cash, people get really angry. <laughs> <It's> like, oh, <laughs> you know, the world has changed and it's changed really quickly. Do you think it's for the better? Look, I think there's, there's different sides of it. So on one end, uh, some are wary of the sort of digital cashless like money trail that it leaves behind the untraceability mm. and the anonymity of cash. It has its own problems, of course, but in the age of surveillance and data accumulation, you know, people who pay with cash, they really like being aware of how they spend their money and, you know, keeping their data with them. But then mm. uh, personal data like it is a concern for some people, but some consider uh, contact us to be, you know, more secure than other forms of payment because you're not exposing your PIN, you're not, you know, there at the card reader tapping in your PIN, and that can be a risk as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how it's all going. Well, it's nice to see that we are um, keeping up with technology, I should say, more than anything else. But though I get what you mean, it's kind of like cashless. If you're doing something that maybe you shouldn't, 
<laughs> Paying in cash is always good. Listen, speaking of bad things, um, uh, TikTok has got a bad name at the moment just with everything that is going on in the news. A, a friend of mine did an experiment about what TikTok does to your phone. Are you a TikTok user, Julia? I am avoiding anything that makes me spend more time <laughs> on my phone. I do not need more excuses. I do not need an app that is known for its addictive qualities. That is the last thing I need in my life. All right. So do you have any social media on your phone then? No, I my ah. whole life I've really been averse to social media. And um, it's something that as I've gotten old, when I was younger, people are like, you're missing out. And now as I've gotten older, people are saying, you made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> are they really saying that? Yeah, yeah 100%. Oh, wh- why, why are they saying that? Honestly, a lot of mental health complaints, Dusty. A lot of people mm-hmm. say it's it's kind of bad for them, and the addiction the addiction quality is bad, obviously. But I know some people who who are really like you know kind of well put your phone or, or they keep their phone in the living room, yeah. to charge while they're sleeping, so that when they wake up in the morning they're not looking at it first thing. All that kind of there was another theme that I saw. Uh, and I think it's funny because it's like 30 or 40 quid to buy this theme for your phone. It's called a minimalist theme. And what it does is it takes away all of the graphics on your phone and you're literally just with, <laughs> left with a list of texts for, for the app. Now, yeah. you can still use the phone, and you still get, but it just looks really boring. Yeah, I know. Graphic <laughs> designers everywhere are weeping. <laughs> well, this is it. But people use their phones less because yeah. of that. Like, you know, and you get rid of that some, some addiction. But anyway, a, f- a friend of mine did a, a TikTok test just to see how greedy it is because we all know that these a lot of these apps are very greedy for information. Uh, how bad is TikTok? So bad that governments don't want it on their official government phones. Uh-huh. Uh, what he did was he, he got a, a I was going to say a new phone. He got a phone that he had wiped. Vumph, all right, reset, factory reset, did everything. So there's no data on it. So literally just start up the phone in brand new factory condition. There was no data on it. There was no personal data. There was no context. There was no search history. Blah, 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 blah. It had only been connected to the internet just on the the one time to get it going and to download the uh, TikTok app and just started the TikTok app and, and got it. That was the only thing running. All right. So we wanted to find out how this was going to work. Right. So on Google, just for a laugh, right, we just searched how to paint a house, okay. which is something that neither of us would ever do. <laughs> all right. And then we started looking at TikTok again. All right. Within 10 minutes, we started seeing all these DIY videos. There you go. Thinking of renovating the house, blah, 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 whatever. All these things just started pop, popping up uh, all of a sudden. It was kind of like, and we did one or two other searches then on Google, just on Google. And TikTok was the only other app on the phone. And we started seeing related videos for that. It was like, that is like scary. Wow. Hype active. Um, it works fast. Uh, oh, absolutely, you know. And then we got a, a one or two of the dating apps, Tinder and whatever else, all right? So we put them on there. We don't have Tinder accounts, wow. but we just, we downloaded the app and we started the app and that was it and we closed it, all right? Then all of a sudden we're starting to see uh, a whole load of stuff about uh, uh, relationships and dating and all that kind of stuff starting to come up on, on TikTok. It was like, oh my God, like, you know. Uh, and then uh, we uh, did a, a trick with VPN to change our location so that we weren't in Ireland anymore. We were in Germany. Um, all right. Uh, and it started then showing us videos more related to somebody who was in Germany than would be in Ireland. I was like, yeah. wow, TikTok just knows what you... now." And I see now, all right, so if you've got, you know, so I was going to say government minister, look, it doesn't matter if you've yeah. got anybody who's working for the government and they've got this thing on their phone, 
God knows what you put in. It could be just, you know, a quick a WhatsApp message or, or a text message. Is TikTok reading that? Uh-huh. You know, so, uh, so yeah, if you have it, be aware. Be very <laughs> aware. <laughs> Look at that. Listen. On the ground research straight from Dutchie. Mm. Well, I wouldn't call it research. I call it playing around with nothing else to do on a Thursday evening while you're having a beard. (laughs) Uh, Listen, uh, another story uh, very quickly. Ireland's STEM education gap. Uh, We have this online. Tell me about it. So, Dusty, things have really changed since you and I were in school. Coding and computer science are now subjects in secondary schools across the country, uh, which Mm. is absolutely brilliant for young students and very much needed for Ireland as a whole, as it hopes to bridge our digital skills gap. But it seems that we still have some way to go uh, to make sure that these subjects are available for all students. New research from the University of Galway has highlighted how gaps in Ireland's digital education system are holding our young people back effectively. So the report noted that there are a real dearth of teachers to fill these STEM positions. STEM subjects like coding and computer science are among the hardest positions for schools to fill. And this lack of Mm -hmm. qualified teachers is unfortunately one of the main barriers to Ireland expanding our much needed computer science education in schools. So there are as few as 34 teachers accredited by uh, the Computer Science Foundation, I suppose, to teach the Mm. subject. Um, And that's across the whole country. And there are 140 teachers involved in teaching uh, computer science currently. One of them, only 34 are accredited. That's what we're dealing with. It's very tough out there for the kids trying to learn. Yeah, especially when you're looking at it, it's kind of, it's 2023 and like computers, internet, apps, smartphones is everything. And okay. AI is coming along as well. It's like, uh, that's insane. We've got the, the full story online for you uh, on that. Uh, also in news this week, uh, Microsoft Teams have redesigned their app now. It's just available as a preview if you're on their insider program and stuff like that. It will be out later in the year. Um, they're building in their AI co-pilot into it. They, I did, does the whole Microsoft AI co-pilot excite you, Julia? It's all happening here. It's all happening. Very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I think that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks, it looks very like Asana to me the way it works and I kind of I welcome that because I don't like the Teams app at the moment it's just it's groggy and slow and uh, whatever that's my thing of it but they do say that this new Teams app will be faster um, and and, and work better and stuff like that and then finally on news this week is Microsoft have come up with a fix for their uh, their Snips tool this is a thing that I use all the time so um, instead of taking a screenshot you just want to take a shot of a part of the screen but what was happening in some cases was that it wasn't just taking a shot of the part of the screen it was taking a shot of the entire thing all right, and only displaying the part of the screen that you had highlighted. But if a bad actor or, you know, somebody who really knew their stuff wanted to see exactly what was on the screen, they could get in and they could manipulate the image and they'd be able to see everything. And goodness knows what kind of personal information could be in there. Now, it's a one in a million chance, but you know what I mean? Yeah. uh, uh, That kind of a thing. But what made me laugh about the whole thing was that the name that the internet gave this entire thing about cropping the image and they said it was an Acropolis. (laughs) Acropolis now. There you go. On that note, Julia, thanks for keeping us up to date on what's happening in the world of tech this week. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more 
at our website, techcentral.ie. For some people, drones are a hobby, for others, a nuisance, and for others, a very valuable tool. Dr. Stephanie Keogh from Sounds Foundation Ireland's research centre, Lero, spoke to Niall Kitchener in the week about her work with unmanned aerial vehicle drones and the agencies who are making use of it. Over the last few years, there seems to be a little bit of a sea change in how we view drones, uh, in particular going from something that we might see as, you know, a recreational project or something that's, you know, pretty good for doing fancy displays or coordinated flying into something that's perhaps a little bit more useful. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience with drones out in Manus? Yes, of course. So, Um, I guess within the National Centre for Geocomputation and the Department of Computer Science here uh, in Maynooth University, we would have kind of a long-standing expertise and experience in in operating drones over the last uh, two decades, in fact. And really it is, um, it's it's kind of that drones for good. It's what um, uh, we kind of see drones as a way to, a simple platform to kind of acquire data sets, whether that's environmental data sets for for monitoring uh, various different kind of environmental conditions. So that could be agricultural use, could also be used um, in uh, sectors such as critical infrastructure. Um, So even monitoring uh, pipelines, power lines and so forth. Um, And then increasingly what we're seeing, um, you know, even even within Ireland is, you know, drones uh, for for delivery services. So certainly there's such a kind of a broad uh, number of sectors that really drones can play a key role. Um, And also, you know, Particularly from our perspective, it's it's that key environmental role. How can we um, uh, use the the data that that's acquired from drones, whether that's from you know different optical sensors, multispectral sensors, uh, lidar sensors that can now be deployed on drones, and really uh, using that information to create even digital twins, for example. One of the projects that you uh, worked on today using drones is uh, UFlight. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what it involved and, you know, uh, uh, the uh, form it has sort of morphed into, uh, which we'll discuss a little bit later uh, in terms of its applications uh, in the Defence Forces. Yeah, so so Flight was a, a strategic uh, partnership um, alongside Science Foundation Ireland, and that really kicked off back in in 2017. And again, that was exploring how drones uh, could be used in in various different sectors. Um, but it was also uh, importantly about testing uh, different drone platforms that were now coming onto the market. So we had these fixed wing drones and rotary operated drones. Um, and we were trying to figure out how could these be used? And um, we were figuring out different uh, applications and different stakeholders as well that would benefit from their use um, and, and from their repeated use, for example, uh, in agriculture. Um, so yeah, so so UFlight operated operated over a number of years, and I guess one of the key things that came out of that was the unmanned traffic management uh, tool that was uh, designed uh, by Professor Tim McCarthy and uh, Dr. Lars Fort as well, um, and that was really about how do we manage uh, the skies in terms of you know the vertical airspace? How do we operate drones safely? How do we operate drones you know in unison with um, you know commercial uh, uh, aircraft fixed wing? 
existing aircraft. So there, there was a tremendous amount of work gone into that UTM and that, that unmanned uh, traffic management system to figure out safe ways of how drones could, could take off from various different locations, uh, navigate the airspace safely um, and, and, and also so it was about reducing uh, the risk obviously of, uh, of, of collision and also being able to you know optimize uh, certain routes. Um, so it was really about these kind of highways in the sky if you like. And, and still obviously a discussion that's that's being had because uh, in recent years we have seen people posting very impressive aerial shots of of this of Dublin uh, mm-hmm. to YouTube only to have people comment underneath that actually that's illegal uh, what you've done. Um, is this I imagine this is a, a conversation that's still very much going on with both the state regulatory bodies and industry representatives as well. Yes. Yeah, indeed. It is. You know, there there are, um, I guess, guidelines and, and there are also uh, different frameworks in place as to how you define a drone operator. Um, uh, and they are, are largely governed, uh, you know, in recent years. Uh, we would have handled that nationally in unison with um, the Irish Aviation Authority, uh, who have always been, um, you know, very... Um, supportive of the work uh, being carried out by by the NCG uh, here in Maynooth. Um, they are, you know, uh, more um, supportive in, in trying to progress. How do we operate drones uh, safely, as I said, um, alongside um, uh, traditional air, air traffic control, if you like. So the project that uh, I really want to talk about today uh, in particular has been the successful uh, project called Copilot, which has been developed uh, with the Defence Forces. So tell us a little bit about it. This uh, came out of Science Foundation Ireland's um, uh, Defence Force Innovation Challenge. Um, and uh, really the, the particular challenge that kind of piqued our interest was in regard to aerial firefighting and the capabilities within the Air Corps as it stands, uh, them wanting to improve the efficiency and, and, and efficacy of this activity. Um, uh, so we were partnered up with our uh, Defence Force Liaison Officer, Commandant Joe O'Reilly, uh, who's been in Air Corps uh, um, a helicopter pilot for over 20 years. So, you know, vast experience uh, and expertise um, in, in this and in aerial firefighting. So really, um, he was uh, at the core of helping us to devise a, a solution um, that that is co-pilot AI. Um, I guess in simple terms, uh, what co-pilot AI uh, seeks to do is really to um, capture and pool and share data so from speaking to um, the various different stakeholders and users within this project that included obviously the Air Corps, but also the National Parks and Wildlife Service, uh, Wicklow Fire Service, and uh, Quilcha, for example, we brought all of them together to kind of do a user needs um, analysis as to what were the, the kind of key issues with this uh, firefighting and fire um, while firefighting, let's say. Um, and really what was coming out was there was uh, a real um, bust when it came to communications. Um, the communications typically uh, involved the use of fax, the use of phone, the use of text messaging, which, you know, in this day and age, you're kind of say, okay, well, we, we need to up our game here. And really, what kind of enabling technologies can the uh, uh, team from Anuth University bring, bring to this? And, and how can we devise a solution that's fit for purpose, that's actually lightweight, that people can use in the field and, and in the air uh, quite simply? 
Um, so again, it's about that pooling of information. And when I say pooling of information, you know, we kind of categorized that information uh, into kind of two, two categories. So we have this kind of static uh, uh, data sets or information layers, uh, and we have dynamic uh, data layers. So we needed everybody singing off the same hymn sheet uh, in what we call a common operational picture. So just imagine a web-based application of, um, you know, a satellite kind of map, you know, your, your, your kind of standard, maybe a satellite view on, on a Google map, for example. And within that interface, whether you're looking at that from your mobile phone device or, or you know, ruggedized tablet in the field, you know, really you want to be able to view different layers and what those layers, uh, those static layers include would be things like, you know, the, the local road network, looking at access to particular uh, wildfire locations, tracks and trails, property locations, the locations of water. Because if you think about this, the helicopter needs local access to water to do their drops with their with their large Bambi buckets. So we needed to be able to provide all of those static data layers uh, in quite a, a user-friendly interface. And then we had a, a series of dynamic data layers. So these would have been uh, data coming off um, fixed wing uh, 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 drones and also tethered drones uh, and, and free flying drones. So we were able to deliver video footage, even thermal imaging um, to this common operational picture. Um, but I guess what's key to this is that each of the users, whether you're fighting fires from the helicopter or from the ground, we're all seeing off the same hymn sheet. But also you can uh, you can basically select what kind of data sets are of interest to you um, so that you're not kind of overloading your own uh, your own common operational picture, if you like. Um, what we also were able to do is if users were, were logged in, um, they essentially became beacons now appearing on the map uh, at a wildfire location. And that's really important for, for the chief uh, fire officer. And we worked closely with uh, Aidan Dempsey and Wicklow Fire Service. He wants to know where his ground crew are. Uh, it's very important also for the for the heli crew to understand where people are on the ground uh, at any given time, whether that's a whether that's a responder um, or or somebody uh, in the vicinity of of a wildfire. So it's a simple real. Uh, it's really a simple uh, concept. It's really about giving people the information that they need, uh, consistent information uh, across a team, and allowing them to. Uh, uh, visualize it, but also communicate to each other with really simple web chat functions, uh, whereby heli crews can can communicate quite seamlessly with ground crews. That certainly is a fascinating problem to have to deal with multiple agencies who doubtless have their own uh, their own systems uh, in place. Whether you know, regardless of their sophistication, um, did you find much friction between each agency? Going well, actually, we need to know this so we can work. Versus another going well, we actually don't need to either provide or give access to this data because it's it's just not relevant to a, to a scene on the ground. I think um, we were uh, very fortunate with the stakeholder group that, that we were engaging with. What we had to kind of do was leave our assumptions um, at the door, if you like, when, when we um, came together with, for this user needs analysis. And what we found is these agencies were working together prior to us uh, bringing them together, if you like, um, they were just using older technologies um, uh, to, to fight wildfires. And, and really what they were finding was is it really impacted the efficiency at which they could operate. Um, so even when, let's say, the, the Air Corps get their call um, about uh, a particular event taking place, that, that, that information is over a phone call. There could be text messages sent, for example, to understand locations and so forth. Um, 
But really it was about them being able to uh, have better situational awareness. And really they all agreed that having this common operational picture really enabled them to have better situational awareness and have better planning. So even prior uh, to to undertaking uh, the wildfire activities, by the time the heli uh, pilots arrived uh, on scene, they understood where was the local water source that they were going to be collecting from. They understood the local terrain. They understood the weather conditions. They understood the team who was on the ground using this um, common operational picture. And was there any, I, d- I don't want to say so much friction, but um, a discussion as to which agency would actually operate the drone, uh, whether it would come from sort of uh, an Air Force perspective or the perspective of somebody on the ground. Um, the, which agency sort of took ownership of that element? Mm-hmm. That, that's a good question. Uh, and obviously the, uh, the Air Corps would and do not allow any free-flying drones to be in operation when they're um, uh, coming onto a site. So really, we had to be very careful. We had to ring fence times and we had to ring fence, you know, geospatial kind of extents as to where those drones uh, could actually operate. Um, but all parties were very open to this. And I guess from the research perspective, Maynooth University having having the expertise in operating drones, we were able to kind of take the lead on that. But the enabling technologies that we were able to bring are um, some of these are off the shelf solutions. So quite simple to be able to deploy these within local fire services. And I guess one of the key things um, that, that we were able to test was a new tethered drone technology. And I guess that the benefit of a tethered uh, drone, so, so it's tethered to a ground station, if you like, um, or that could be stationed on the back of a, of a fire service uh, vehicle, uh, on the back of a national parks and wildlife vehicle, for example. And that tethered allows you to transmit power and and Wi-Fi communications. And what it also does is it allows you to operate that drone in a fixed location for a much longer uh, period of time in comparison to a free-flying drone, which typically, you know, you get maybe a half an hour out of and and you have to land and change batteries, for example. And so that tethered drone technology gives you kind of a long uh, operation time and it's fixed location is really the key benefit um, so that in the future perhaps that the Air Corps may be able to operate with the tethered drone um, at a particular pre-agreed uh, location and a pre-agreed altitude for example. That's fascinating that idea of having to keep delivering uh, power as well as data. Um, was that sort of a problem that emerged during the research when you decided actually given the length of these incidents we really have to go with a tethered solution as a pro- as opposed to a free-flying one? Yeah, so I guess we we went with the uh, the experience of um, the the fire services that would that would typically operate in these uh, scenarios. We're not used to to, to firefighting um, at all, and so for us it was a case of let's listen, um, let's see what has worked in the past for them and what hasn't worked. And um, there are of course free free flying drones in operation across many public agencies, and and they're capable uh, drone operations uh, and drone operators. Uh, uh, doing that work. I guess for us, it was about um, without having to take a crew member uh, aside to operate a drone, these tethered drones, um, you know, do not need to be piloted. Um, It's not to say they don't need to be supervised. Yes, of course, um, but they don't need uh, to be piloted. And as I said, they can can run in a fixed location um, uh, really quite safely. Of course, uh, Copilot AI just recently won an SFI Challenge Award uh, 
specifically for the defence forces to the tune of €1 million. Um, Clearly a sign that people uh, are recognising wildfires as a problem. Um, When you were uh, coming on board as part of the team, was this something you were acutely aware of already or was it you know very much a, a matter of learning as you went given, given that your background is in uh, sort of climate science yeah well I think I think most people um, nowadays would be um, aware of you know those scenes from the from the news internationally from a European perspective of of the increases in wildfires globally um, and you know with with the the kind of backdrop of global climate change you know these are expected to increase by 50 percent by the turn of the century so it isn't something that we can ignore it's only going to be um, a, a greater problem going forward but really when we kind of uh, dug a bit deeper we really think about wildfires in the context of of kind of the societal impacts of them, uh, the economic impacts of them, and more importantly, it is this environmental impacts. So we know, you know, the cost. If we if we look at the U- USA, for example, you know, the cost of these uh, events are in, in the region of you know over two trillion dollars since kind of 1980. And um, you know, from a societal perspective, you know, there are fatalities over 100 fatalities, for example, in the, in the Greece 2018 wildfire event. And um, we know the risks associated with um, with actually. Rest- Responding to these events and the safety uh, of responders uh, should be at the core of any solutions uh, being developed. But again, yes, it is the environmental impacts coming to the fore um, more uh, more recently. You know, in the context of loss of species and habitats, um, but also you know the emission of of uh, of carbon from from these particular events. Um, and uh, depending, obviously, on on the land use type, you know the loss of, of, of habitat as well from, from these events. And that was Dr. Stephanie Keogh from Science Foundation Ireland's Research Centre, Lero, chatting with Niall Kitson. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. There are more stories online that we didn't have time for, including how AI is being used to knock down phishing attacks. Microsoft are blocking emails from unsupported exchange servers. We'll give you the details on that. And there's also good news and expansion stories for tech firms in Cork and Limerick. You'll find all of that on our website at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday on RT Radio and Extra or to get new episodes automatically, just click follow on your podcast player. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall and from Julia, thanks for listening. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by dustpod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye.